Jonathan Armstrong, what has been on your mind? Well, I know, Tom, at the moment, a lot of our clients are really struggling with data transfer from the EU and or the UK to the US. And many of you will remember that this largely uh, arises from the striking down of the Privacy Shield arrangement. This is Tom Fox. In this episode, Jonathan Armstrong takes us through the current proposal for data transfers from the EU to the UK and from the EU to the US and perhaps the UK to the US. It's an interesting exploration of what's on the table to potentially become the new rules and regulations and something that every compliance professional needs to be aware of. I know you'll find this episode extremely useful. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back with Life with GDPR. Jonathan Armstrong, what has been on your mind? Well, I know, Tom, at the moment, a lot of our clients are really struggling with data transfer from the EU and or the UK to the US. And many of you will remember that this largely uh, arises from the striking down of the Privacy Shield arrangement in July 2020. So far, it has not been replaced. And Privacy Shield itself was only put in place in 2016 to replace a scheme called Safe Harbor, which had also been struck down by the European courts. And I think as well as a number of our clients struggling, not necessarily with strategy, but implementation, we've also seen a number of people say that corporate M&A deals particularly are being imperiled by the lack of a solution to uh, data transfer. We've seen, for example, at the big IAPP conference in, uh, in the US this week that people have said that uh, data transfer is a material risk for investors in US corporations and may need to be disclosed as such in people's filings, particularly if it impacts the worth of organizations. Those, for example, that rely on ad revenue or those that sell to consumers in the EU can be impaired by the lack of a data transfer strategy. And the US and the EU have had discussions about replacing Privacy Shield. And I know we had this debate last time around as to whether anyone could name a film better than the sequel. I could only think of Paddington 2. I know other people had other thoughts. But I can't ever remember a threequel, or whatever we call the third sequel, being better than the original. I think that's almost likely, or almost certain to be the case here. And any threequel deal between the EU and the US will undoubtedly take time to put in place. I think optimistically, that's going to be the end of 2022. So there's still 
an eight-month period or, or, or so before the new deal is done. And the new deal will require some changes in the U.S., whether that be legislation or more likely through executive order. It will create, apparently, an independent review court in the U.S. for EU nationals to be able to review the activities, particularly of the U.S. security services and the U.S. security services are apparently going to be told that they must only use data in a way that is necessary and proportionate. So they can't do mass trawls of emails, for example, or internet traffic, apparently, under the New Deal. But we haven't seen this New Deal yet. And it's sort of, at best, an agreement to agree and so, for corporations, they're still in that void of uncertainty. What about UK to US? Similar situation. I think it will be easier to do a slightly quicker deal for data exports from the UK to the US. The UK has a sort of hit list of data transfer deals it wants to do post-Brexit, and the US is very much uh, towards the top of that list. Uh, but again, um, even um, optimistic UK officials seem to be saying uh, end of 2022 at best. So in the meantime, what can corporations do? Well, from for data that's going from the UK to the US, they can have the spanking new IDTA, International Data Transfer Agreement, to try and legitimize transfers from the UK to the US. And from the EU to the US, they can sign standard contractual clauses, sometimes called model terms. And they have a new uh, iteration there in the sort of well beyond the beta version now, if you like. But the problem with both of those regimes, the agreements themselves are slightly more difficult than they used to be uh, pre-2020, uh, pre and they require something that we've called the double due diligence test. So you have to be satisfied that the corporation that you're dealing with is going to look after the data, and the country that you're dealing with is going to look after the data as well. And again, for US corporations, Part of that material risk for investors is the fact that the U.S. is not considered by many to be safe because there aren't measures in place to ensure that the U.S. security services only use uh, data in a necessary and proportionate way. And because it is perceived that the U.S. state has wide-ranging powers to seize data and uh, that there's effectively no supervision, uh, an argument that seems to have been backed up by a recent US court judgment as well. So, as a temporary solution, we had a US official this week saying, well, actually, you can do your double due diligence test on the basis of the sort of promises that we are going to put in place in the future. So, now that we, the U.S. government, realize uh, that these are the concerns of EU nationals and that we intend to do something about it, 
you can do your due diligence test almost as if we had already done it. But it seems to me that's a little bit like a, a sort of defense to a speeding fine to say, well, officer, I know I was 20 miles an hour above the speeding limit, but I did intend to slow down in 30 or 40 miles. So you don't have the ability to ticket me. I don't think if there was a solid agreement with a start date, then maybe, just maybe, corporations could get comfort. But a sort of vague agreement to do something about it in the future, I don't think gets you past go in monopoly terms, uh, particularly when the issues with U.S. surveillance laws have been well rehearsed over the years. As I say, well before 2016, we had safe harbor collapse. And well before that, we had German regulators like the um, uh, the DK, the, the body where uh, German regulators used to get together criticizing the safe harbor system. So, um, unfortunately, it's not a good news story in that I think there is more recognition of the problem now, but in some respects, that exacerbates the issue, particularly if you're involved with investors who are wary of data transfer issues, if you're trying to raise funds, if you're trying to sell uh, the business or part of it, then you're going to be asked very tough questions about data transfer, to which there are no great answers. And it seems to me that this um, material risk for investors in U.S. corporations is going to continue for at least a short while yet. Jonathan, in terms of the material risk for corporations in an M&A context, uh, would the the risk or potentially the penalty be that after acquisition, they could not access the data that's in Europe or in the United Kingdom? Yeah, that's that's correct. So we have had cases, uh, you know, even in the U.S. back in the day, there's a case called Toy Smart, for example, which was an online toy retailer, and um, Disney were involved in that. And I think the end result there was that um, Disney paid the – liquidators when the business went down to effectively destroy the data because they gave up on being able to transfer it safely into their organization. So you're right, there's a there's a particular post-acquisition risk. You know, how 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 are you going to get the data back to the mothership? You know, if you've acquired a business with let's say uh, an online advertising portfolio and people have got data on a million individuals who are based in the UK or the EU and you're going to try and uh, change the way in which you transfer the data, how are you going to do that? How are you going to give notice to those individuals that there has been a transfer? How are you going to comply with your GDPR obligations. And we've been involved in transactions where acquirers have asked very tough questions about that. And that's even, you know, without the added scrutiny that we've had over the last uh, couple of weeks with people recognizing that as a risk. Now, of course, some acquirers are willing to take a risk, but almost uh, 
every occasion I've been involved with, that then ends up to be a money discussion. You know, if you're prepared to acquire the asset with the risk, you obviously want to pay less for it than if it didn't have any risks at all. So, value is key as well in this. If you're going to maintain the value of the corporation, then you need to have a good data transfer strategy as well. And of course, we haven't even talked about things like regulatory risk and litigation risk, which are certainly both rising in Europe as well. Let me pick up on that last point because I'm glad you raised that. Because in listening to your uh, remarks, Jonathan, it strikes me that I think you correctly said this is a risk. But if it's identified as a risk, then that risk can be assessed and that risk can be hopefully managed. Uh, You do that in compliance, you do that in data privacy, you do that in AML. um, We do that all the time. But particularly you do that in the the M&A world. And if you identify a risk and you ring fence that risk either by um, price, and you mentioned that, but perhaps you could ring fence it uh, in another way that you actually won't bring the data to the United States Mm -hmm. until there's greater clarity or or in some other way. And it's a long-winded way of suggesting that if you can identify it as a risk and you can assess it, then you can put as you said, cost around, but you can also put safeguards or protections around that. And you, if the transaction is is critical or could be critical one, two, three years down the road for your organization, you may want to take that risk if you can manage it. But the key is that you recognize it as a risk and then you, you assess and then manage that risk. So I see perhaps one more step in uh, as uh, uh, one of my favorite words is perhaps suboptimal. Nevertheless, uh, it's yeah. something that uh, you can create a workaround for within the business context. Yeah, you're definitely right. I mean, the key thing is getting to the heart of the issue. So, the the, the difficulty I think that some corporations have in the M and A context is that uh, some uh, law firms who do this type of work don't have that. Uh, key uh, data transfer specialism to be able to work out the reality of the risk. So, of course, anybody can point out theoretical risk. It's harder to quantify the risk that applies in that particular case. And that, I think, is why it's important for any business that's trying to raise money or trying to do some sort of transaction, to have a clear strategy, which it can share with potential acquirers to help them assess the risk and not chip the value down. Uh, Let's go back to, no doubt, my favorite topic as Conspiracy Tom, which is the uh, Independent Review Court in the United States. Mm. Now, uh, you're well aware that the Biden administration won the 20. November 2020 election. We have a new administration. But under the prior administration, and indeed if we have another similar Trump administration, uh, they made clear that they will not follow law, uh, court rulings be damned, uh, they will do what they want. And if you get an administration in who, having signed to allow an independent court review, then says no. We're not going to allow anyone to review our national security issues. Where does that leave us in terms of uh, data transfer? 
I think that's a challenge. And of course, the Privacy Shield d deal was largely done by the Obama administration, again by executive order. And they promised to put in place a sort of ombudsperson who, who would do the same as I think it is planned for this new court to do. And for whatever reason, the Trump administration was somewhat tardy in appointing that ombudsperson. They had a temporary ombudsperson who I think came from the anti-whaling commission or something who managed to uh, share roles. I know at the time there was a White House hiring freeze, but I, I think the difficulty is I'm not clear, and, and I'm not clear because there's no, um, there's no meat behind this agreement to agree at the moment. I'm not clear how different the court is from the ombudsperson, nor am I clear whether there's an absolute unentrenchable commitment to fund the system properly. And absent that, I don't think that the deal will stand up to scrutiny. You know, Privacy Shield itself only lasted for around about four years. And that was in a less litigious environment than we're in now. It was, um, you know, with, with less pressure groups on the scene and less public interest. If this deal isn't done right, even if they do a deal, it's only going to last as long as, um, I don't know, long life milk in your fridge. Let me turn to something that I've heard you talk about uh, numerous times over the years on this podcast, on Life with GDPR, and in others, which is standard contractual clauses. Mm. And frankly, I've never understood why standard contractual clauses have not gained more favor. Uh, I've been a transaction lawyer for a long time, and you know, to me, if you could put something in a contract that's a standard clause, that's kind of a win for everyone because you don't really have to fight over the terms and conditions and you have a general understanding of what they mean. So I was wondering if you could give a few words on why standard contractual clauses have not really garnered more favor or am, am I just wrong? They have garnered favor and it's just under the radar. I think they are, to use your words, suboptimal, but they're the least suboptimal option at the moment. I think a lot of people's if you like, prejudice against standard contractual clauses, is that in the early days, they were undoubtedly written badly. Um, you know, we're approaching um, the Eurovision Song Contest time soon. And there's a sort of a, a, a version of the English language that's used in Eurovision, a sort of Euro-English, if you like, a crossover language that's neither one thing nor the other. And there's an even worse version of that crossover language, which is sort of, um, you know, super complicated uh, use of long words in the wrong context, et cetera, et cetera. And that language was used for the original standard contractual clauses. They had bits that didn't make sense. They had typos in them. Bits of it referred to other bits that didn't exist. And you weren't allowed to correct the typos or correct the spelling mistakes or make the formatting work because then it was said that you'd altered the standard contractual clauses 
and, and you therefore couldn't use them as standard contractual clauses. So I think that inflexibility and that uh, bizarre use of language weren't, didn't make for a great introduction to standard contractual clauses. I think some of that has got better, and there are obviously different versions of the standard contractual clauses to reflect different types of arrangements, uh, and, and that's probably useful. But the main problem, I think, is that all of this process really gets back to the same issue. If you're going to do standard contractual clauses, you've got to do your double due diligence test. You get back to, uh, is the US a safe place for European people's data? And you end up at best with a maybe. Um, so you go through a process that's perhaps understandable, but you're still left with a big question mark. And as you rightly say, whenever you're doing stuff via executive order rather than hard litigation, you're at the vagaries of any new administration. So that doesn't bring the certainty that corporations need when they're structuring things. You know, if you're looking at HR outsourcing, you're looking at a five-year term, or a 10-year term, or a 15-year term, you need some certainty that the law is going to be more or less the same throughout that time. And you just don't have that certainty at the moment. Well, thank you, Jonathan. My pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert in our show notes, which talks about this case. I know you'll find it fascinating and interesting. Also, I'm incredibly pleased to announce that the limited podcast series, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, was recently awarded as a special honoree by the Webbies. They are literally the Oscars of podcasting. So this is a huge award for myself, the Compliance Podcast Network, and my guest, Lauren Steffi and the production team at One Stone Creative. I hope you will check it out if you haven't done so. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.